Welcome to the Not Old Better Show Inside Science interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is brought to you by Kachava and Find a Grave. Please check out our show notes today about each sponsor and please support our sponsors as they in turn support the show. What does it mean when someone says, I'm not wired that way? Usually that adage refers to whether we can learn something, understand something, or how easily a person's brain pilots us through new information and even more. Our guest today on the Not Old Better Show Inside Science interview series is Dr. Chantel Pratt, who will help us understand the adventure <laughs> that is the human brain. With style and wit, Chantel Pratt takes us on a tour of the meaningful ways that our brains are dissimilar from one another. Dr. Pratt will use real-world examples along with other data to show us today how to identify the strengths and weaknesses of your own brain while learning what might be going on in the brains of those who are unlike you. Dr. Pratt's new book, The Neuroscience of You, will be the focus of our conversations today and will help us see how brains that are engineered differently ultimately take diverse paths when it comes time to prioritize information, use what they've learned from experience, relate to other people, and figure out what it means to be different. So this section is called, What Does It Mean to Be Different? I'll be the first one to admit how much comfort I find in a good book fiction or nonfiction, that helps me feel like some of the things that I think are really strange about myself are actually pretty normal. But my understanding of what makes something normal or abnormal is probably different from yours. So this seems like a good place to start our discussion. The first thing to note is that the distinction between normal and abnormal is almost never a binary one. It's not like those of us in the know look at a group of people through our scientific lenses and think normal, 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 weird, normal, normal. It just doesn't work like that. Instead, whether you're studying someone's general level of optimism about the future or their brain size, there's almost always a range of values that describe the characteristic you're interested in. The question then becomes, are you within the normal range or outside of it. But how do we know how do we decide where the boundary is? And here's something not everyone understands. You can't scientifically define what's normal or abnormal without understanding the nature of how people differ. When we do, we need to hold two different ways of defining normal in mind. One, how typical or atypical is a particular way of being. And two, how functional or dysfunctional is it? Let's take attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, as an example that I have some personal and professional experience with. According to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, a diagnostic of ADHD requires five or more symptoms of inattention or hyperactivity that persist for at least six months and that negatively affect social, academic, or occupational activities. The symptoms include making careless mistakes, lacking attention to detail, having difficulties sustaining attention, having trouble listening, failing to follow through on tasks and instructions, being disorganized, avoiding tasks that require sustained mental effort, losing things, 
being easily distracted, and being forgetful. If you just heard that list and thought, holy crap, that's me, you are not alone. After one of my brightest students with the most streaky productivity record was diagnosed with ADHD in graduate school, I started to wonder whether my husband, Andrea, and I fell within the normal range or not. Fortunately, the ability to pay attention is something I also study from a how brains do it differently perspective. And as you'll read in the focus chapter, paying attention is costly for any brain. But some people are clearly better able to stay on task and resist distractions than others are. But here's the challenge. If I were to try to use my laboratory test to sort people into within the normal range and outside the normal range buckets, my focus would be entirely on how typical a particular type of behavior is. Much like teachers who grade on a curve use class averages to weigh a particular score, usually setting the average to a C grade, Scientists can use statistics to decide whether a particular way of thinking, feeling, or behaving is typical or atypical by estimating how likely it is to be observed in their population of interest. Unfortunately, the choice about how to map unlikely to abnormal is a bit arbitrary. By convention, many scientists draw a line in the sand at the point where 95% of the population would fall in the normal range, and 5% with the most extreme values would be considered abnormal. But once that line is drawn, on either side of the cutoff, you will find two people who end up in different buckets, even though their performance looks more similar to each other's than it does to most other people in their own buckets. That, of course, is our guest today, Dr. Chantel Pratt, reading from her new book, The Neuroscience of You. Please join me today for a wonderful conversation to help us understand ourselves and others by zooming in so close that we all look gray and squishy. Join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Inside Science interview series, Dr. Chantel Pratt. Dr. Chantel Pratt, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Well, it's great to talk to you. Congratulations on this wonderful book. The book is titled The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. And I'm excited to talk to you today. Hope all's well uh, with you and yours and um, that you're having a a good summer. I am. It's uh... You talk a lot about second acts on your show and, yeah, you know, yeah. this is something completely out of my comfort zone. You know, the people who do the science and the people who write about the science are not always the same people. And so I think it's, I'm I'm sinking into the feeling of uncomfortability that comes with trying something in your late 40s <laughs> for, the, for the first time when you think you've sort of figured out how to do the other part of your life. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I know that well, I can tell you I absolutely relate. I know many in our audience will relate, and I think they'll relate to this book too. There are a lot of books right now about uh, the the brain, and especially for my audience about the aging brain. As I was doing my research for uh, for our conversation today, I, I did find several, and I wonder if we could just start there for a second. What what is the neuroscience of you tell us about aging brains for my audience? Oh, that's such a great question. So I'd like to answer that question in two ways. The first is um, aging, like everything about neuroscience and psychology and humans and probably behaving creatures, is not a one-size-fits-all process. So books on the aging brain are probably still highly focused on means, averages. So, you know, you might 
read a book that says um, memory peaks in the early 20s and, you know, steadily declines thereafter. But that's not true for everybody. That's what it looks like when you take an, a group average of, you know, a, a large group of, you know, and sometimes they look at 31 to 50 year olds. That's quite a big range. And then 50 to 70 year olds, they look at a big range of ages and then look at a big range of people. And in fact, if you look at the data that goes into those um, characterizations, you see quite a bit of difference there. So I can um, give you a strong, like a specific thing that happens on average with age. And then I can just flesh out a little bit what I mean by those individual differences. In the book, um, I talk about neural rhythms and how one of the ways that brains are unique is that we all have a preferred frequency of communicating just like a rad on your radio, you can turn into a particular channel and pick up signals over radio waves that are traveling at that frequency. Your neurons also have preferred frequencies for communicating, and different brains have different preferred frequencies. Now, this the speed of this frequency changes over the lifetime, and as you probably suspect from your internal subjective experiences, I certainly feel this, they begin to slow in the, you know, around the 30s that your preferred frequency begins to slow on average. But if you look, um, I actually pulled up a study by Clark and colleagues where they looked at, um, they were looking at working memory, which I'm happy to talk about later, but they were looking at memory function and this preferred um, neural frequency across the lifespan. And in their data, you know, they report like many people that there's this slowing on average um, across the, the after the 20s. Um, but if you look at their data, I thought this was really fascinating. So I actually went in and looked at the individual dots that make up their graphs. Individual dots are people. And if you look at the 60-year-old age group only, you find the fastest preferred frequency and the slowest preferred frequency. So the 60-year-olds actually have the most variability of any of these, any of the age groups of these 550 individuals that they studied, right? So one size doesn't fit all. There might be a, a characteristic, but people age in different ways. And, and I'm sure a lot of the things that you talk about and probably these books on brain science and aging focus on what are the things that we've associated with better or more sustained patterns of, um, or maybe less, less deficits in aging. But that's my second message. And I think that that's like a really great thing about this podcast, not old, better, right? Is like this idea, something that's really central to my book is that different doesn't have to be better or worse. And slower does not have to be worse. So in this book and in my research for this chapter on preferred neural frequencies, one of the things that I sort of thought to myself is if, so I should just take a little step back and say that what, what's the point or what's, what does it mean to have a preferred neural frequency? And the idea is that this is how often your brain refreshes or takes in a new packet of information. And that between these cycles, there's kind of a rest or a silent period, and then a new package of information comes in. And you might think, well, the faster I'm updating, I'm sending new information to my brain, to my conscious awareness about what's going on outside, the more 
on time I'm going to be or the more representative what I'm learning is going to be about what's going on in the outside world. However, the slower that frequency is, the more information gets chunked into one package that goes to the brain. And I kind of thought to myself, might this be related to creativity? And in fact, I found a study, um, which is also mentioned in the book, there's that little creativity exercise, where, where they showed that people with faster frequencies are able to come up with more responses to a creative prompt, which I won't give away uh, in case the person wants to do the test themselves. But people with slower frequencies are more original in the responses they come up with. So I kind of thought this makes sense to me if you've got fewer packets, but you can make broader connections. There's more stuff in there to sort of link together in your ideas. And so this is kind of my my two cents about aging in the brain, you know, stuff that you can glean from my book would be keep in mind that not everybody ages the same, just like not everybody thinks or learns the same when they're young. And that the changes that are happening during aging or the changes that you might expect during agency aging might have unexpected and interesting and exciting benefits. Thank you for that. Yeah. I, because as I, as I was doing the research, I, and as I was reading through the book, I, I took several of the tests, and, and they were favorites of mine. I, I did the handedness assessment on your website, and uh, and I, I enjoyed that. I thought I thought that was really you know a nice addition. What do you, what are the exercises and the tests there to teach us about the brain? individually? How does that work for us specifically? Mine's different than yours, et cetera. Right, right. So in the lab, obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious, but I'm a neuroscientist and I've always been interested in the relationship between how brains function and how people understand the world, how people think, how they, what inferences they make when they read, how they learn, how they learn different skills from foreign languages to now computer programming. But of course, in the lab, I have direct access to your brain. So I'm recording some signals coming from the brain while I have people engage in tasks and play games and stuff and so forth. But in the real world, if we're motivated to understand one another and if we're motivated to understand ourselves, we, we have to reverse engineer from the way somebody behaves how their brain might be working. So this is what I put into the book. The, um, I put the most well-studied phenomena that relate to differences in brain functioning and also to some behavior that you can put on a page, right? So whether it be a, a personality, you know, or sort of characteristic ways of, of behaving and responding to the environment or a handedness test, you know, sort of the kinds of things I, I, I understand that people intuitively understand that they're not all the same, right? Like you, you people, how often have you heard someone say that's not the way I'm wired? So we know that we're not all the same, but there isn't good science to explain it. So in the book, I wanted to give you some hands-on, I wanted to give the reader some hands-on way of guessing, you know, getting a better guesstimate of how their brains would work without actually going into the lab by, by playing these different games and uh, that, you know, they vary from handedness, something as, you know, sort of straightforward as motor control, which people vary a lot on. And as you, as you notice, I mean, one of the biggest myths about handedness is that you're left or right handed. It's not true. It's a continuum. 
you know, and so it's like people who might think they're, you might think you're right-handed and I might think I'm right-handed, but one of us might be closer to someone who thinks they're left-handed in terms of how skilled both of our hands are, right? That's a continuum. So anything from that ranges from this kind of handedness test to creativity or problem solving um, can give you little insights into how the sort of design features of your brain. So I, I kind of, in the book, I make the analogy of different car engines and the different way that car engines work and the different influence of having a four cylinder or a six cylinder or automatic or a stick. And, and it's kind of like that, you know, there are some basic principles of brain design that I cover and, and try and give people some clues to how their brains might work. I mentioned our sponsor today is Kachava. And I want to tell you all about Kachava, which is my all-in-one daily super blend. If you're worried you aren't getting all the nutrients you need or struggling to stay on top of your health, then listen up because Kachava has you covered. Kachava puts everything your body needs in one glass so you can have it all. All of us in the Not All Better Show audience know we need these superfoods as we age. We need all the vitamins, all the omegas, all the adaptogens, all the greens, all the protein, and all the benefits for your gut, for your skin, your hair, your brain, your muscles, and your heart. Your whole health, especially as we age, no more compromise, no more guilt, no other nutrition shake does all this. The Kachava team traveled to the ends of the earth to source all the vitamins and crush it up. Kachava is a powder. You take two scoops, just add water, blend it up, and it tastes incredible. They have five delicious flavors. I really love the chocolate and vanilla, but chai is great too, and I've added it to my personal favorites. Look, I'm recording this first thing this morning, and I've already had my cachava for breakfast. Yesterday, I did the same, and it kept me full for hours. There's just no way I could get all these nutrients with my normal diet. Again, as we age, dear Not Old Better Show audience, we need this special blend of nutrients. Trying to manage all the supplements and ingredients you should be taking, it's overwhelming and expensive, but now... Kachava makes clean, organic, superfood nutrition accessible to everyone. Listen, I'll tell you, I'm loving Kachava, and you've got to go try Kachava for yourself. And right now, for a limited time, Kachava is offering 10% off to our Not Old Better Show audience. Go to kachava.com slash better. That's Kachava, spelled K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com slash better. All this will be in our show notes. but. Go to kachava.com and get 10% off your first order. That's kachava.com slash better. Thanks, everybody. I mentioned that our other sponsor today is findagrave.com, the world's largest online gravesite collection. I wanted to just tell you a little bit about findagrave. At findagrave.com, you can browse through cemeteries around the world and discover burial information about your family, friends, and even famous people. Findagrave.com makes it easy to locate the graves of ancestors and learn details like birth and death dates, familial relationships, and the location of burials. Through the Find a Grave community of members, you can add or request photographs of headstones, create virtual memories, or add virtual flowers to a loved one's memorial. Search findagrave.com by name, location, cemetery date, and more 
findagrave.com members add more information each day. So check back often to see new search results. Looking for a way to give back and be part of the Find a Grave community? Download the free Find a Grave app and then visit your local cemetery and add missing grave information to the site. It's an easy and fun way to spend some time outside while helping others who are searching for their family and friends. Findagrave.com is completely free to use. So start your search today. Check out our show notes for more information, but go to findagrave.com and become a member of the Find a Grave community. Thanks, everybody. And now back to our guest today on the Not Old Better Show Inside Science Interview Series, Dr. Chantel Pratt, who has authored the new book, The Neuroscience of You. Dr. Pratt, you mentioned working memory, and I'd like to talk to you about what that really represents, especially when it comes to creativity, because creativity for my audience is a next step, a a second act, perhaps. It's about taking what we've always loved and, and doing that. So I wonder if you could differentiate what working memory is versus yeah. other types of memory. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, there isn't enough research on this for me to say it with 100% confidence, but I often have the feeling that there are forces that work against one another in the brain, right? So um, I'm not going to, I will exactly de- define working memory and then I'm going to get to the creativity thing. So working memory is something that in my field, people argue about all of the time, but I'll tell you things that are not controversial. So working memory is a term that we have to describe how many things you, how many ideas you can hold in mind at a single time. And most people will agree that this is not like I'm looking at a picture and I'm noticing all of the pixels in this picture, but instead it's like a kind of idea that you can manipulate, that you can reorganize, something symbolic. So at least I can close my eyes. I have some kind of representation of a piece of information that I can juggle in mind. And what everybody agrees on is that this is a fundamental bottleneck in human information processing. This is a bottleneck in brains. Like some people can juggle multiple things in mind better than others. Um, And so, but everyone is limited by this. So the number, depending on how you quantify a thing, there used to be this idea that it was like the, the magic number seven plus or minus two, if you give people a string of digits. But in fact, we found out that people are creating a, a single thing by merging three or four meaningful digits together, right? So you can you can trick the system by packaging a lot of things into one. Um, so the number, some people argue, is one to three or one to four things that you might be able to hold in mind. Uh, but this is why, like, you know, the example, I, I think I gave this example in my book. Like when you walk into the kitchen and you're like, what am I doing here? that's a working memory failure. You at one point had a goal, you're sitting in front of the television and you had a goal and you, your body started to act on that goal. And then you get to the kitchen and that goal has, you've been distracted. The dog was cute or something else happened. And that goal fell out of mind, right? That's a, that's a real life example of, of how working memory works. And, and so there are a few things to note there. One is like how it works in the real world is so different than how it works in the lab. In the in the book, I give you a test, just remember a bunch of numbers. There are no 
there's no meaning associated with those numbers and there's no real world goal or context in which that's happening, right? So it's like wor- what working memory means for you, I think, for your listeners is more how much can I use an explicit goal or information that I've been given to guide my behavior? Does that make sense? Like, like, okay, okay. And what, and, and while, and here's where I'm going to be a little bit evocative because it seems to me like at at face value, that kind of seems non-controversial. Like I want to be able to do that, right? Like I want, being able to like behave in a goal-directed way is important. I want to remember why I've gone to the kitchen. Like, what do you mean better? Different isn't always better or worse, but there are costs to that, that I think the average person doesn't understand. And that is like, if you're behaving in a truly goal-directed way, and by goals, I mean some internal goal, some internal state is driving your behavior, it's great. It's convenient. It allows us to be flexible, but it actually, sh- it actually blocks or, th- or warps the, the things that you notice in the world around you. So when you're operating in a goal directed way, your brain knows, and particularly the, the parts of your brain that are sensitive to rewards, they're very flexible and they know like, okay, Chantelle is hungry, (laughs) you know, like she, if we go, if we walk her to the kitchen, she is likely to find something there. But of course, that's what I always think I want when I'm in the kitchen, but I really wanted to get a phone number that was like stuck on the magnet or whatever, right? Then I'm standing in front of the refrigerator, like, what am I doing here? But anyway, these parts of your brain that are really motivated to, for you to be successful when you're holding a goal in mind they turn up and turn down the signals from the world around you and from your inner world in a way that they think is going to make you more successful. So this can actually manifest in something like at the extreme ends, there's something called the attentional blink that we study in the lab where you give people streams of, of stimuli to notice like letters and numbers. And when you're goal oriented, your, your goal is like detect the numbers, remember the numbers. When you, when you see a number and your brain, those internal things go like, oh, turn up this signal. This is the thing that you want to remember. You will actually miss the next sequence for something like up to 150 or 200 milliseconds. You will stop processing the outside world. You don't see it. So, so there's, what I want to say is there's something really important and beautiful about behaving in a non-goal directed way and that you're able to see the world as it is and be present to it. And, and if, and I hope we do get to talk later about connecting with people who work differently or updating your beliefs about things like what happens if you find yourself in a situation where there's strong evidence that is contrary to your beliefs. When do you say like, oh, this is new data. I'm going to update it. And when do you turn down the signals on that? You know, so this, you know, everything has us, I don't know if everything, but things that might surprise you, like paying attention or behaving in a goal-directed way, there's a flip side. Like your brain is doing this. Mm-hmm. It's making decisions for you, but you're missing things too. Well, and let's let's talk about that for a second because in in the book, uh, the neuroscience of you, you you do 
you you write about this kind of this idea of of perceptions and and perceiving things a little differently kind of by person. You say we can learn a lot about ourselves and why we perceive the world the way we do, not to mention why other people might perceive it differently than me. I as I read that, I just thought, wow, right now this time in our society seems like a really good a sentence for us to kind of keep in mind, to maybe jot that down, add that to our working memory. <laughs> and I, I, I took that as being, um, uh, you know, something that was just, we need to learn that. And, and, and now is the time to do that. I, I wonder what you mean by it. That's, that's what I mean. I mean, so, yeah. well, not, mm-hmm. I will not make the mistake of assuming that your brain means the same thing as mine when you said that, but that, <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, my right. why. I mean, so, you know, tw- yeah. I, my my percolating feelings for this book started around 2016 and 2017, and before the Great Resignation and before the pandemic, there was this thing that I call the Great Unfriending, where people who, um, and, and I think that th- this is what you're alluding to. It's just like all of the sudden, or you know, I, I felt the pivotal change in culture around being able to have hard conversations or being able to disagree without hating someone, thinking they're stupid, biased, whatever, all of these things. And I, you know, and there were intelligent people I know who couldn't seem to understand that 50% of the world that believes differently from them aren't monsters. They're, you know, I'm like, you study humans for a living. Like how, you know, how can you think this? And so I wrote this whole entire book. I think my sort of heart intention was like, I should also say that my husband is a neuroscientist and the conversations that he and I have over the table, we work really differently. Our brains work really differently, but we have this shared understanding of the way everyone's brain interprets so much, right? So your brain is powerful and mighty, but it's this finite organ that is taking samples of an infinite and continuously changing energetic world around it. And it's filling in the blanks at every level. And so, you know, I think just the fact that you know, when the black and blue or white and gold dress like caught the world by, you know, by storm. And and because I think the reality that your brain creates for you is so convincing that people were shocked, you know, or Yanni, Lou, or, you know, like people are shocked that something as elementary as color is inferential. It's not just different you know, different light waves hitting different cones in your eyes. If it were, uh, you know, a green apple would turn red in the sunset and blue in the shadow. Your brain makes inferences. It takes context into account. It builds the world for you from the bottom up. And I think that people don't appreciate how different brains construct different versions of reality, even at those low levels. So when you go up to something like political beliefs or, um, or identity, or, you know, like, and you think about the ways that your brain tells you stories that connects the dots at that sort of personal narrative level. For me, it's just, it's so wild that anyone could be strongly convinced that they are right. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah. I think I just, I want to underscore that. I think 
for my audience. Uh, you know, again, the title of the book is The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. The book will help you understand yours, but I think it will help you understand others, too. We're with Chantel Pratt, Dr. Chantel Pratt, our guest today. She's author of the new book, The Neuroscience of You. I, I just can't recommend this book enough. And, and I do want to talk to you about um, the the notion that you just mentioned, the the husband and wife uh, kind of recognition, because my <laughs> wife, Gretchen, to whom I, I've been married for 33 years, she's a very different person for me in a lot of ways, very creative, a dancer, choreographer. She also has this real scientific side to her. She has this master's degree in kinesiology, and then she has an MFA in dance. And I think our differences are really special. And, and to think of our brains as alike is different for me to think about that. And and you say we're more likely to become friends with someone with a brain like ours. And so I, I have never really thought of Gretchen's brain as like mine, although it is in a lot of creative ways. And certainly what I'm doing now with my career is more creative and that kind of matches up. We may have adjusted to each other kind of over time. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, so tell, yes. yeah, talk about that a little bit. Am, am I the odd one? <laughs> Probably, but. <laughs> yeah, right. There are individual differences. Yeah. I, you know, it's so funny because one of the things that is like my burning, one of the like burning questions I have is what are the real axes of individual differences, right? Like um, things that never make it into a personality scale, like love of animals mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or fascination. I think. So something that feels true of me my whole life is that I've always been really curious about people who are different than me. And I've always, I've never had like, you know, this sort of stereotypical breakfast club kind of category, like right. that, you know, the stoner, the jock that I was none and all, I was all of that. And, and so I think, I do think that there's a real individual difference in sort of our, our sort of, um, how, um, how much we like and feel comfortable when we're surrounded by people who are exactly like us and how much we're like, you know, I've, in my life, I've met a handful of people where somebody was like, you're going to love this person. They're just like you. And I was like, I do not like this person. Like, <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> or I don't like, you know, I, I like people who are, who balance me out, but I'll, but it's fascinating because in the last just maybe five years, social neuroscience has been exploding um, around this issue that, you know, what I call brains of a feather flock together. And um, and they started out by putting, they they mapped an, a, a graduate program. And they, you know, this is a very homogenous group, I can tell you. Like, I mean, graduate students are, are very different, but like if you take a group of graduate students and compare them to a group of people in the world, you know, you're already starting with kind of a lot of commonalities. But they took these graduate students and they created a social network by saying, you know, are you friends with this person? And then if you said yes and they said yes back, then you're one link, you know, you're, you're directly connected. But if you're not friends with this person, but you're both friends with someone else, then you're one, one point, one link away. And then they put them in the scanner and they showed them little video clips. So they were like um, news, politics, stand up comedy, all these little video clips. And in this first study, which to me is sort of less surprising, they showed that you can strongly predict um, how close people would be in the social network based on the way their brains respond to these um, to these video clips. And a lot of that work was done by the kind of reward areas of the brain. 
this this makes sense to me. I mean, you you wind up hanging out with people who like the same things, who think the same things are funny, so forth and so on. But the follow-up done um, by that group sh- took an entire island in South Korea. So now we're, 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 you know, expanding. It's still island and so forth and so on. But, you know, the diversity is significantly expanded. They took this whole island and did a social network for them. And here they put them in the scanner without any task. So this is something we call resting state or task-free measure of brain functioning. Really what you're looking at is patterns of connectivity, things that tell you something about how this brain works on average, what pathways information flows through when it's totally unconstrained. And in this study, they showed that you could predict social affiliation based on how similar someone's brain is, even when you control for like very obvious and strong effects like personality, how close you live to the person, age, gender, even when you enter all of those things into the equation, how similar your brains are to one another explains significant variance in how closely you're you're likely to be, um, not related, but affiliated or friends, how close of friends you're going to be. And, and I think people think this is cool, but it kind of, it makes me feel uncomfortable because you know, we talk about homophily and we talk about, I think a lot of times we talk about groups being homogenous. We think about race, gender, age, political affiliation. We don't really think about this kind of information processing engine between our ears. And, and what I think happens is that it's easier to understand someone who works like you, right? We're reverse engineering one another. I'm guessing what you like or don't like based on what you talk about and how you behave. And I'm guessing why you behave the way you behave. And the thing that I have the most information about is how I, why I behave the way I behave, right? So it's just easier. You get it right more often if like, oh yeah, you did that because X. But if you did that because something I would never consider because your brain works different, then you make mistakes, right? And and I worry that we don't have the world where people have trusting, you have to, you know, we don't, I don't know, it feels like we don't talk to our neighbors or like, you know, we don't have these casual interactions where you can build a trusting relationship and first and then get it wrong and get feedback and learn how to model people who work differently. I worry about that. So my book is like, hey, man, like, here are a bunch of ways that people could work differently. Here is a, you know, and and sort of calling to action. Let's just say for the sake of argument that this person is exactly as right as you are. And that they their brain has just created a dramatically different story based on the genes that engineered it and based on the way every single experience changed it. You know, can you then, can you get to a place where somebody who behaves totally opposite, uh, totally different than you, that you can understand how they could be also right? Well, Dr. Pratt, the book is uh, readable and enjoyable. Again, the title of the book is The Neuroscience of You. As a matter of fact, uh, one of our popular guests on the program, uh, Dr. Anna Lemke, said that the book is smart, funny, irreverent. Reading this book is like downloading a PhD in neuroscience in one exuberant sitting. And anyone who wants to know about how our brains works 
and why they matter should read this book. I think that's high praise. And um, I wonder if you'd just uh, answer a final question about what, what do you still want to understand and, and teach us? Because we'd love to have you back too. But what do, what do you still want to understand about the brain and how it works for oh, us individually? That's such a, I mean, everything. I feel like we just, we just know a little bit, but you know, I don't just want to know, I mean, as you may allude, as you may sort of um, infer from this context conversation, like my goal is not to figure out why some people do better than others, but how to create environments that are optimized to individual brains. I mean, that would be my goal is, okay, now I understand that this brain performs well in this context. How do I change the context? You know, we're talking about frequency of sampling rate of the environment. Is it something as simple as like delivering ideas at a different rate? You know, how do we use what we've under what we've learned about different brains in this world of technology to create, you know, tailored environments for learning. Like some people are more sandbox. I'm a real sandbox learner. Like I'm a touch the stove to see how hot kind of learner. Like how can we change, you know, parenting, education, um, I don't know, television. Like how do we change things to actually match Mm. the way someone's brain works? Fascinating. Dr. Chantel Pratt, author of the neuroscience of you, how every brain is different, and how to understand yours. Dr. Pratt, thank you for your time. Thanks for this fantastic research and work and for your reading today. I very much appreciate it. I I mean it. We'd love to have you back. I think this is a complex subject, but I think it's one that we want to know more about. We'd love to hear more from you in the future. So please check back with us as you have more information about our brains. I absolutely will. I think we're, you know, this individual differences thing is is new and it's going to change. It has to, you know, there's so much we don't know and I would love to keep you updated. Yeah, we'd love it too. Thanks, Dr. Brett. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. I'm happy, happy to have had this chat with you. My thanks today to our sponsors, Kachava and Find a Grave. Please check out our show notes for more information about our sponsors and please support our sponsors because they in turn support the show. My thanks to Dr. Chantal Pratt, author of the new book, The Neuroscience of You. You can find out more information about Dr. Pratt and her work in the show notes today, too. Please be well and be safe. I'm saying this to you regularly about being safe, and that is to be safe by eliminating assault rifles. We don't need them in the hands of non-military and They're killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, school. So please, let's be safe. Let's talk about better, the Not Old Better show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next time.